This is the Education Gadfly Show. All right. <laughs> Children first, yeah. baby. That's good. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Tressa Pinkovitz. Tressa, welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Tressa, for those of you that don't know, is Associate Director of Reinventing America's Schools at the Progressive Policy Institute. And we had your colleague David Osborne on just a few weeks ago. So it's just all PPI all the time here on the show, which we love. So I appreciate you joining us and having David join us as well. Also joining us this week, my special co-host, Olivia Piontek. Olivia, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello, Olivia. It's great to have you here stepping in. For David, unlike David, I'm going to let you talk later. So get ready for that. It's going to be very exciting. (laughs) I'm also not as pessimistic as David. That is a very low bar, so to speak. (laughs) Right, I know. (laughs) Yes. All right. Well, the big news recently, of course, was the selection of Kamala Harris as Joe Biden's vice presidential pick. And we're going to talk about that and the the Biden-Harris ticket on Ed Reform Update. All right, Tressa. So, you know, the Progressive Policy Institute, you've got your roots in the New Dem movement going back to the 90s, maybe even the late 80s. So center left. Here we've got Joe Biden, who is a well-known moderate. And of course, a big debate happening about whether Kamala Harris should be considered a moderate as well or is, is more on the progressive side. But on education, uh, a lot of us in education reform are pretty worried when we look at that platform that came out after Joe Biden had reached out to the progressives, to the Bernie Sanders and the AOCs and the like. I had some language in there that not so great in some of our opinion on testing, charter schools, other things. You tell us, is there any reason to be optimistic that if this duo were elected, that education reform would end up doing okay? What's the scoop? Well, I certainly don't have a crystal ball, and I certainly don't (laughs) pretend to be an expert on Kamala Harris, but I am really pleased with Biden's pick. And I agree with you, the platform was not good. And it was very discouraging, especially to see that he didn't include anyone from the moderate wing of the party at all to be in the committee that helped construct that. And he also did not include anyone from the black or brown community who represents the children who attend charter schools and the parents who are so Mm -hmm. dependent on school choice as in many cases, the only opportunity for their students, their children to get a high quality education that's going to lead families out of poverty. So I actually wrote a piece in The Hill expressing disappointment and a little bit of dismay over that political strategy that you wouldn't want to have everyone at the table. But looking at Kamala, she is, I don't know if I would call her a moderate, but I would say from what I've learned, she definitely seems pragmatic. And of course, radically pragmatic is the the catchphrase, the slogan of the Progressive Policy Institute. So we like pragmatic. We like people that can adopt realistic policies that are going to benefit people. Mm. I think David Brooks just coined the term radical conservative, but it's basically the same idea, right? It's somebody who embraces the notion of change and reform, but also cares about governing and knows how to get things done and not just tear things down. Anyways, back to you. Exactly. So 
I'll play pundit for a minute, just because we all love to do the armchair thing. Having qualified that, that I'm not an expert. When she was running for the Senate, she received contributions in California, of course, she received contributions from Reed Hastings, founder of Netflix, who is a big charter school supporter, spent a lot of money on state superintendent races in California and Los Angeles County school board seats, really invested a lot of his considerable wealth into politics in California in the interest of expanding school choice, and especially in the urban centers. Also, Eli Broad of the Broad Center, the Superintendent's Academy, very pro-charter, pro-choice group, and also Laureen Powell, and I may have said that wrong, Powell Jobs. And also, I forgot one more, New York billionaire, Michael Bloomberg. So she has definitely received financial support from advocates who are very interested in education reform and education improvement and the expansion of school choice and uh, charter schools. So that's one part of it. I can almost hear over the, the airwaves, people out there on the progressive left saying, see, see, but that is interesting. So you see that as a promising sign that she has been contact with people who do care about charter schools and some other education reforms as well. That's fair. All right. And anything else that we can look to on a record that can give us some encouragement? I guess you're really especially talking about on charter schools in particular. Well, yes, because that's what my focus mostly is, charter schools, autonomous schools, innovation schools. But I will say, on the other hand, she did strongly support the teachers in Los Angeles, the LA Teachers Union, when they went out on strike. And a big part of what they were striking over was limiting charter schools in the Los Angeles district. So she has kind of walked the line there. And a little bit more that is encouraging me, it's not necessarily encouraging for the campaign, but maybe encouraging for governing. And of course, it remains to be seen what the Biden-Harris relationship is going to look like and how much influence she's going to have. Each president and vice president seem to have sort of a unique relationship. Certainly Obama and Biden were extraordinarily close. Um, so so being that being said, Alexander Burns at the New York Times did a profile piece on Harris last July when she was still a candidate for president. And before he sat down with her, he did some extensive reporting with people who had known and worked for her for quite a long time. And she seems really according to all these different people he talked to and then confirmed by Harris in their interview, she seems really determined not to be labeled with any definite ideology. She seems to be much more pragmatic. And she said that her central guiding policy is to always ask the question, how will this policy impact actual people? And so Burns pushed her on that a little bit and asked her, well, how do you answer that question when you're asking yourself, how is this going to affect a person or, or people? And she said, so this is where my encouragement comes in, Mike. She said, the first question she poses to herself is always, how will it impact children? All right. <laughs> children first, yep. baby. That's good. Although I yep. don't know how that then leads her, for example, to support the LA teachers exactly. in that strike. I mean, fine if it's about pay and working conditions, not so fine when it was about stopping charter schools that are doing a great job by kids. We'll have to see. We'll have to yeah. see how closely she sticks to her principles. But the other couple of things that she looks at are numbers. 
is there a vast number of people who would be affected by this? Is this an issue that many, many people lay at night worrying about? And I would have to say that with well over 3 million children in charter schools by now, and many, many more, 11,000 in Washington, D.C. alone on charter school waiting lists. Yeah, this is an issue that affects a lot of people. And then her final thing was significance of time. And she said uh, she actually cited Brown versus the Board of Education and how long it took to build up the legal precedent for the court to finally overturn Plessy v. Ferguson. And she noted that every day in the life of someone who's being denied justice is a very long time. So I'm hopeful that given this and given her orientation to communities of color, that at some point she'll get to meet enough charter school parents on the campaign trail and hear from enough charter school advocates the real truth and the real data to maybe soften the campaign once they get in the administration, once they get into office. If they get into office, of course. Mm -hmm. And that all sounds okay. I mean, I still do worry about what's on paper now. In terms oh, of I do too. I don't worry about policies that would end up hurting uh, the current charter schools or kids in charter schools. Because as you say, there are constituents. Uh, they will march across the Brooklyn Bridge. They'll march to Washington if they have to. What I worry about are policies that make it much harder to start new charter schools. And that's basically what's in the platform, right? To basically let local school districts have veto power over new charter schools in their communities, which of course is what the teachers unions, what Randy Weingarten in particular, would very much like to have. The reporting is that Randy is close to Kamala. And so that's the worry. And, and especially if you believe, as I do, that the only thing that has worked at scale over the last 50 years when it comes to urban education has been the expansion of high-quality charter schools. At any given time, you can identify a handful of urban school systems that look pretty good. Right now, Miami-Dade is having a moment, for example. Let's hope that it sticks, but it usually doesn't, right? They rise and right. fall. But for 25 years now, charter schools have been doing an amazing job in cities, especially for poor kids and kids of color, and especially those high-performing charter schools that we used to call no excuses, charter schools. And so is the Biden-Harris administration, if it happens, going to be about expanding those schools like the Obama-Biden administration was or not? And I think that's something that maybe we'll get to see come January. Yeah, I just wanted to say that everything you just said about charter schools is correct. And it's especially important that we couple that with accountability because where we've had trouble with charter schools is when we've had weak authorizers, who haven't put in the second piece of the puzzle, which is the accountability factor. So I don't expect them out of the gate to reverse course on what they've said now, but it's just a clear conflict of interest to expect school districts to review and have veto power over federal aid. I just, I just don't see that actually ever happening. No, that's super well said, Tressa. Olivia, what do you think? I was reading a piece on Kamala published a couple days ago, right after Biden announced the VP pick. And it was a profile of her similar to that of 2019, but it was going deeper into the complexity of Harris's actions and how she positions herself on the side of an issue. And a lot of people are frustrated that they can't peg her for like one side or the other. There was a lot of criticisms about her presidential platform that there was inconsistencies in some ways and also just not a lot of clarity. Especially when it comes to her education platform, there wasn't a specifically articulated vision for that. But I do think what's promising is that she describes herself as somebody that can't be pigeonholed and that she 
feels that she can successfully have it all and that she doesn't have to, you know, side with one side or the other. So obviously the teachers unions are a very strong influence over this task force and the ensuing recommendations. But I also don't think that she's somebody who would necessarily side with them wholly, especially to your point, Tressa, about the massive impact that a decision about charter schools would have for the three plus million children in the schools at this time. Well, look, if they get elected, the key issue that they'll have some control over with charter schools is their budget proposal for the federal charter school program, which is mostly about trying to help new charter schools get opened, and whether they will propose conditions that go on those grants, like make sure the school districts have this veto power, or what happens if the House and Senate are in Democratic hands and they propose that kind of thing. And so at some point, they're going to have to declare themselves, <laughs> right? right? This is politics. Sometimes it's helpful as a I'm sure that she was picked was that she's been uh, a little bit, you know, cagey about getting pinned down on various issues. Uh, But once it comes time to governing, you got to declare where you are. And this is going to have real world consequences. And the greatest fear is that the pandemic and the the deficit resulting from that is going to provide cover for not spending those grants that you're so right, Mike, are so important to helping new charter schools get going. But I think the most important thing is that the charter school community needs to get organized. The unions are very, very organized. We need to organize and we need to really push hard. Well said, Tressa. So thanks again, Tressa Pankovitz at the Progressive Policy Institute. Hope you'll come back sometime soon. Anytime. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. for the Research Minute, Olivia Piontek. <laughs> Olivia, welcome back. Thank you. A double header here for you, Olivia. This is very exciting. Stepping in, not just for David, but for Amber as well. This is what happens in the summertime. We've got folks out on vacation, but we are in your capable hands. You've played this role before, and we're super excited to see what you've got for us. Well, today we're going to take it easy on the methods because it's hard to describe over a podcast. So we're just going to be talking about a working paper that's a meta-analysis a bunch of impact evaluation studies of school improvement interventions. The paper is titled Improving Low-Performing Schools, a Meta-Analysis of Impact Evaluation Studies. Many authors on this, but suffice it to say they're from Harvard, Education Trust, and University of Virginia. So this is a meta-analysis of 67 studies that investigated the effects of school turnaround policies implemented between 2000 and 2018 specifically after NCLB and high-stakes testing for accountability. So as a refresher for our listeners, school improvement interventions were instated after NCLB as a way to inspire rapid and transformative improvement for schools that consistently performed poorly. And during the Obama administration, school improvement grants were awarded to the lowest performing schools. In order for them to receive these funds, they would have been required to implement one of the following improvement interventions. So there was transformation, which involved removing the principal and school-wide efforts, turnaround, which involved removing the principal and at least half the teachers, restart, which required school takeover of an outside body, which was often a charter school operator, and school closure, which is obviously closing the school. School turnaround policies have typically been criticized for being ineffective, and the authors actually quote you, Mike, for saying, we don't know what to do about chronically low-performing schools. Nothing has worked consistently in its scale. That sounded pretty good. I, I hope they didn't quote me just to refute what I said. That is probably what they did. Uh, well, yeah. All right. Go ahead. They did some fancy methods in terms of gathering rigorous studies and did a bunch of 
algorithms that I'm not quite sure I understand. But I did want to know a few of the inclusion criteria that each of the studies had to abide by if they were to be included in the analysis. So first, they needed to be an impact evaluation of a policy effort, such as the one described above. The main outcome of interest needed to be on at least one student academic outcome, like test score, suspension, attendance, graduation, etc. Analysis was limited to K-12 U.S. schools, obviously, and the intervention needed to be passed after NCLB. For this particular analysis, the author's main outcome of interest was high stakes test scores related to accountability, um, but they did also investigate some other lower stakes outcomes like other testing, attendance, discipline, graduation. And like I mentioned, the final count was 67 studies across 18 years. So it's pretty comprehensive. There were a bunch of big takeaways, but we're just going to go with some of the ones I think are most relevant for our context now. Um, basically, it turns out that not all turnaround efforts have been a failure. Sorry, Mike. There was evidence of some positive impacts. So the average impact evaluation demonstrated modest but significant results on math test scores. And there was suggestive evidence that it was positive for ELA scores, but not statistically significant. There were also suggestive effects on school attendance, reduced disciplinary infractions, and increased graduation rates. There was no evidence of negative effects on low-stakes testing or tests in other subjects like STEM and the humanities. This suggests evidence of real learning across multiple domains. Um, And efforts were most effective in math, but especially in math for Latinx students. Interestingly, many of the turnaround efforts did not have very significant impacts on primarily African-American schools. The authors kind of talked about that a little bit, about how there needs to be more research done about specific school policies that would positively impact majority Black schools. For whatever reason, most of the interventions conducted between 2018 and 2000 were most effective for Latinx students. They also went to the policy implication side of things and found some pretty important takeaways. So there weren't really any outstanding differences in effects by intervention type. So transformation, turnaround, charter takeover, closure, none of them really had any different effects except for charter conversion. Um, They did find positive effects whenever a charter school took over, and that was especially evident in math. School closures were also effective only insofar as students had another high-performing school to matriculate to afterwards. They also found that district-wide interventions yielded larger results school-wide, which seems to make sense given the amount of resources available at the district level versus school. And then in terms of specific features of an intervention, the two most effective were extended learning time and teacher replacement. Um, And that was significant for both math and English language arts. And then second to those two features were tutoring and wraparound services. Those also had positive effects on academic outcomes for math and ELA. And then finally, the authors mentioned that these results began to appear just one year after the intervention took place. There was a big conversation at the time about how long an intervention would have to be implemented for it to become effective. And they did find evidence that it was effective even after just a year, but the effects grew larger as the duration of the intervention increased. So overall, not the worst picture. Pretty rosy. Well, this is good. I'm going to have to change uh, my line on this for sure. And that quote was from many years ago, I believe. 2010. All right. See, 10 years ago. Come on. And so I think the line would now be something like school turnarounds with a lot of money 
can get you Love some modest impact. Look, it's not nothing, but let's remember it was a lot of money, right? In a lot of these places. <laughs> I mean, it was, again, is understandable. We've had debates about this forever. What should we do about failing schools? Should we give up on them or not? And if there's a lot of constituency that has said, don't give up on them. I mean, I remember Diane Rabbit saying we should give them more money and we should help them turn around. Well, that's what this has been about. And most of the interventions have been on the softer side, right? They were not. And then, you know, the money was spent on things like tutoring and extra instructional time. So again, pretty soft, but it does give you some benefit. It just costs a ton of money. And so I would still say that for the money, starting great new charter schools where a bunch of these kids could go would give you more in the long term. And by the way, we continue to see, as with so many interventions, no impact on reading. It is hard to change those reading scores, but especially the way that we are trying to do it, which is treat reading as a skill. It don't work, people. Well, I also think it's pretty interesting that the teacher replacement was one of the most effective features of the interventions. Obviously, it's like a very charged topic, but you know, this is a meta-analysis of dozens, you know, 67 studies. And that was like the highest rating intervention. I think that's fascinating. And I so wish that way back when, back in 2010, instead of pushing for teacher evaluation changes writ large, we should have focused that on those handful of low performing schools. You know, that's where we should have said, okay, in those schools, in those turnaround schools, you need to redo teacher evaluation and pay attention to student achievement if and when you can. That makes sense. Replace teachers that are not getting it done. Interesting with African-Americans versus Latinos and Latinas. I, any take on that, Olivia? Any guess? I would say we have seen that in some other kinds of interventions. At times, charter schools not necessarily usually see pretty good effects for African-Americans in charter schools, but there have been other interventions over the years where you see that same pattern. The authors didn't really have a good theory on that either. I certainly don't, especially given that like ELL services are not mm-hmm. necessarily fantastic in most schools. So I'm not really sure what that um, effect is, but they were, you know, they did the typical more research needs to be done in this area. Yeah. <laughs> Look, you know, if you dig in on the poverty side, there are today more African-American children in poverty than Latin uh, mm-hmm. children and more in deep poverty. There are some of these schools that are mostly African-American kids where the kids are just desperately, desperately, desperately poor perhaps more so than in some of these other schools. So that maybe could be part of it as well. All right. Well, hey, that is a lot to unpack. And I'm so glad you brought it to us, Olivia. That was that was fantastic. You know, I always complain when Amber goes into all the methodology. Wah, wah, wah. So this is great. I say, it. yeah, let's just skip it. Let's just assume that those people know what they're doing. Okay. And we'll take their word right. for it. That was well done. That's smart research. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well said. Well, that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week, I'm Olivia Piantek. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.